We've been on a journey over time, which started with serving administrators and specialists, then extending the solutions that we had built and building additional solutions for classroom teachers. Uh, and I think it's kind of reasonably likely that in the not too distant future, we will be a unique company that is serving and supporting both educators uh, and students with a solution in which kind of one part of it informs the other. We believe that we can be helping educators in the way we do, but we can strengthen that if there is kind of a component of Elevation being used by students and providing kind of data and additional insight to teachers to strengthen their practice. And kind of similarly, if we can um, combine the work that we've done with educators to uh, develop solutions for the students themselves, I think in that case, one plus one equals three. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sifronis. We kick off a new year and a new season of Highest Aspirations featuring a conversation with Elevation co-founders Teddy Rice and Jordan Moranis. Teddy and Jordan talk about how Elevation's origin story is directly connected to an EL teacher working to maximize impact on her students, what organizations like ours need to be doing to keep current on what's happening in school districts across the country, and what you can expect from Elevation in the near future. Quick spoiler alert here, this has to do with working more directly with English learners. Before we get started with our conversation with Jordan and Teddy, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our short video series, blog posts, and great articles. And finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Here's our conversation with Elevation co-founders Jordan Moranis and Teddy Rice. Jordan Moranis and Teddy Rice, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thanks, Steve, for having us. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you guys on. We've had lots of guests and we've now done your, I think, our second and third uh, Elevation folks to come on the podcast. And that's something that, uh, that we're really excited about. So with you being the co-founders of the company, I want to start by talking about how Elevation uh, all began. So tell us about Carrie and Hal from rural North Carolina. Yeah, sure. So um, Carrie and Hal are wonderful people. Um, we were fortunately introduced to them over eight years ago now um, by a mutual acquaintance here in the Boston area. And uh, Jordan and I were uh, each in our respective work. We knew each other. We were uh, very interested in education and specifically around um, building a business to support English learners. And we um, heard of uh, Carrie Hill and, and her father, Hal Breadbender, down in North Carolina, who had created um, 
really on their own a database um, to help administrators and teachers um, work with uh, English learners. And Carrie um, was an EL coordinator and teacher down in um, a Husky, North Carolina, in the eastern part of the state. Um, her father, Hal, was kind of a software um, uh, guy in kind of the Raleigh-Durham Triangle area. And um, as it happened, uh, Carrie and I kind of grew up really close to each other. Uh, we made a, um, plans to meet when, uh, when I was down there uh, near uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and quickly identified that um, uh, Carrie and Hal had stumbled into something quite important and had developed something valuable for the customers that they had sort of initially acquired. Um, and they had something that Jordan and I didn't have, which was really a deep understanding of the practitioner uh, in the field that we were entering. Right. So it was a really great match. And um, subsequently, and I'll, I'll hand over to Jordan, but subsequently we had the opportunity to meet them again and develop a relationship, which ultimately led to the acquisition of that small little company they had started, um, which kind of started the, the kernel of elevation. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my favorite stories is that uh, I needed to be down in North Carolina, and we had already initiated some conversation with uh, with Carrie and how we were kind of learning. We were trying to figure out where we were going in the start of elevation, uh, and uh, we all went out to dinner in Durham. Um, and one thing that was interesting is that um, Hal is Carrie's dad, uh, and we did not know that until about halfway through dinner when she kind of referred to him as dad. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, and um, it was not long after that that uh, both of them saw a real opportunity in uh, a partnership, as did we. And I think by the time we finished dinner, uh, there was reasonable agreement that the combination of skills and experiences uh, uh, and expertise together was better than apart. And I think we knew kind of leaving that dinner that there was a, a fairly good chance that we would kind of combined forces, uh, which we did not too long after that. A quick postscript on that, Steve. Um, Carrie, uh, and some of the listeners will know this, Carrie actually remains very much part of the company and a very important part of our work. Her father, Hal, uh, older gentleman, he is our first elevation retiree. And he, uh, he was able to exit the business, um, build a small tiny house somewhere around Raleigh, and now does wildlife photography on the side. So uh, if Hal's listening, as I'm sure he probably will, Thanks, Al. Yeah, having having been here for uh, I guess what three and a half years now, I I had the pleasure of meeting Hal, and he's a very unique individual and definitely somebody who I have tremendous respect for and carry as well. You you hit on something there that I think is really interesting. Um, you talked about the combination of skills and expertise, and how they had something that you didn't have, and that that really brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, which is near and dear to me as someone who was a teacher for a long time and kind of looking to to come into the ed tech space and make a higher impact. And I, I had marginal success with that um, until I stumbled across Elevation. But I've seen here, you know, that we have a lot of educators um, working with us and, and we have that sort of combination of skills and expertise that's, that's made us successful. So my question is, what value do you both think um, that educators bring to Elevation specifically um, and really in general to educational technology companies? And how do you go about making sure they are sort of a correct fit for that combination of expertise that you talked about? I, it's a great question. And I think the field um, grapples with this. I think there are probably too many education technology startups that are run by um, and don't include the voices of educators that are really kind of apart from and don't have empathy with or an understanding of either the domain 
or the end user. Um, and so, you know, for us, uh, we believe that implementation of technology in school systems is as much about change uh, as it is about technology. And that if you don't get the former right, it's really difficult to be successful in the latter. Mm -hmm. And so for us, uh, we realized early through that partnership with Carrie and even some of our very early hires um, that we needed a combination on the team. We needed folks who had um, firsthand experience and insight into the extraordinary challenges that both administrators uh, and classroom teachers face. Someone who could speak to um, our customers, our partners, in a way that is understandable and could make sure that we, Teddy, me, our engineers, were kind of building uh, and growing in a way that was reflective of their needs. And so that might mean having a better understanding of what the timeline is required for an implementation or kind of what it means to add something new when a teacher already has three or four other applications that are needed. Yeah. So that combination turned out to be extraordinarily valuable for us. And I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I think at least a third of our team of 115, 120 people have a classroom experience and schools experience. Yeah. I guess, Steve, one thing to add to that, I think, um, you know, this goes right back to the beginnings with Carrie. I think a lot of ed tech companies get started with a conception about how the world should be mm -hmm. as opposed to how the world is. And um, from the early get-go, we were working with real districts. We had real people on the team who had real experience on the inside of these pretty peculiar institutions. And so it's really important that you really understand, like, you really build a business for what the world is as opposed to some fanciful idea about, like, what it could be. And you, you want to balance both of those things. You certainly want to have an aspiration for change and improvement and growth but you also want to be pretty clear-eyed about these challenges and obstacles that are uh, um, you know, part of our work. Um, and I think the educators in our company have helped provide some of those insights necessary to make sure we're navigating that properly. And this may be a kind of good point to just talk philosophically about how Teddy and I see the work that we do and that interplay with educators. So both of us uh, read the, Walter, the great Walter Isaacson book on Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs kind of famously said, uh, the customer doesn't know what they want. We know what they want. That was kind of his kind of uh, view, the mantra behind mm -hmm. the creation of the iPod. Um, Teddy and I really see the world very differently. Um, we actually believe that through the feedback we get, um, the end user, the educator, the customer actually knows a great deal about what they need. Um, and we think about kind of the balance as 80-20. Kind of 80% of what we do is going to be very much reflected uh, by or informed by educators and the way in which they give us feedback. And there might be kind of 20% where we kind of push forward a little bit, where we've got uh, a vision or we've got uh, an aspiration. And it's a little bit more of a risk, but that combination has kind of proved to be effective, that most of what we're doing is informed very directly by educators and our end users. And a little bit of what we do is us kind of leaning forward. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, and you need that for such a complicated space that we work in. I mean, you know, as people know who listen to this podcast, I was a teacher for a long time, but I spent um, a better part of a year and a half training, you know, at, at elevation around the country and the complexity of these, these districts and what they're trying to do and how our 
products fit in is 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 really 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 something to behold when you're out there in the field doing the work and so it really helped me understand um how you know you you do need the feedback from the customers but i i do think that that 20 percent that you mentioned jordan is also kind of uh fodder for a little bit of creativity and solutions that may seem out of the box for teachers. But then there's that sort of change mindset there that you need. And I think the other thing that you really need, both like in a, in a specific sort of training situation, when you have 20 teachers in front of you, or when you're coming to work with a, with a big district um, at the very beginning, is this, is this trust. And that sort of leads me to another question that I had for you. And this kind of goes back a little bit to my history with Elevation as well. One of the things that you were talking about, Jordan, was the idea of the enormous um, uh, amount of effort that we put into our culture. And I've certainly seen that here. And, you know, one of the things that we place a tremendous amount of value in is the diversity um, in, within the company of the people that we hire. Could you talk about how diversity has led to innovation and or other positive outcomes for our teamers? I think it's important uh, to expand, right, and talk about both diversity and inclusion, both of which are important and are reflected in our values. Um, and uh, for us, I think a lot of the benefit and in innovation comes from having people with different perspectives and different life experiences working closely together on a solution. And so, um, I, you know, I'll use as an example our uh, instructional strategy solution or offering without the combination of people. Uh, and that included engineers who were thinking a lot about kind of how something gets built, educators like, uh, like Alyssa Jean, who kind of joined us from the classroom to help develop this solution. Um, and uh, other people who were more focused on implementation and training without that combination of uh, experiences, uh, I think it would have been incredibly difficult to develop the types of solutions that um, we have been able to bring to educators and continue to improve on. The other, you know, th this is less about innovation, but I think that what we're trying to do is attract great people who want uh, to work on really hard challenges. And I think that uh, just by emphasizing the importance of diversity and inclusion by um, kind of living those values, we, we, we create opportunities for people who might not find the types of organizations that they're looking for uh, to then join us and kind of contribute their skills and expertise. So part of it is about very specific innovations and solutions. And part of it is about creating an environment that people want to join mm. and do extraordinary work. The other thing too, I mean, just going back to, um, my customer comments a moment ago, you know, we're in a field where our customers expect that we are inclusive and diverse. Yep. Um, they serve inclusive and diverse communities. And I think there's been a, uh, a lot of benefit internally in terms of the types of people we've been able to attract, types yeah. of culture we've been able to create, but there's also uh, external value in making sure that we're kind of walking the walk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that you guys just mentioned was the idea, uh, well, that was part of the question, you know, how that has led to specific innovations and with innovation come challenges and with challenges come, you know, failure from time to time. And that's, you know, you can't get away from one of these conversations without asking that question. I think it's an important question. People love to talk about how failure is an important and maybe even necessary experience for those who set out to achieve great things. Curious if either of you can think of one mistake or failure that you've experienced that's led to something um, positive here. 
let me give you let me give you an example of a, a failure that didn't start off as a failure, but which reflects sort of the need for uh, nim- nimbleness and change. So, uh, when we started the company, um, the world was a little different, uh, and in particular, federal policy uh, was guided by uh, the law formerly known as No Child Left Behind, mm-hmm. and that created a certain kind of um, I'll call it district structure uh, that served ELs in a particular way with a with a special focus on the specialists and administrators who kind of shouldered most of the accountability for English learners. In 2016, uh, the law changed and um, every Student Succeeds Act created um, a different kind of environment where those same administrators and specialists now shared accountability more specifically with principals and classroom teachers. And that, um, to our perspective, was a really good thing. And I continue to think that's a really good thing But it meant that um, one of the products we had sort of initially conceived, um, we don't use this name anymore, but it was initially called In Class, was kind of a different product with the idea that it was specifically oriented to classroom teachers. And as that law changed and as that environment evolved, it became clear that um, we needed to create a product that could be accessible and consistent and coherent for all users and that we couldn't silo these different groups in the same way. And so that recognition, and I, I would call it a failure uh, in the sense that what, what had worked began to fail. Um, and so we had to make an adjustment and the new direction that we've taken, which our customers will know about, is really exciting. It means that the, the experience of a classroom teacher might be different, but it's still very consistent with what an administrator and specialist would expect. It allows us to manage that change more broadly across the district in certain key ways. Um, it's better, I think, for really all the stakeholders involved. But it, you know, it started from a place of policy change and disruption that made the old model no longer effective. And so I don't sit here bemoaning or um, regretting in class, but I am glad that we had the um, uh I guess, foresight or wisdom to make a change when it was needed. Uh, right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll throw out one that I haven't, um, I don't think I've kind of put in quite this way, but uh, the question was a good prompt. So we, uh, we measure ourselves on lots of different metrics, and one of them is our renewal rate. Uh, and that means if we uh, start the year with 100 partners and we end the year with 98, we have a 98% renewal rate. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, Teddy and I were kind of working with someone externally who was helping us uh, with a couple of different things. And they looked at our renewal rates by, uh, by region. Uh, and one of the things they pointed out was in California, our renewal rate was lower than in other parts of the country. And it was something that Teddy and I kind of didn't really know at that point. It was a little bit of a surprise to us. And when we really dug into it, it turned out that um, a number of our early partners in California um, had not renewed, in part because, and we knew this, that the product that we had created and that we had continued to evolve as we moved into California simply wasn't, um, wasn't ready for some of the nuance that, uh, that the California, uh, the, the regulatory environment um, and the set of processes that are kind of resonant in that state require. 
Well, it turns out that almost all of those early districts were those that I sold. We didn't yet have a sales organization. And so I was the one in California. I was the one demoing and helping uh, to get those partnerships created. And um, first, I would kind of like look at myself for not having quite the level of nuance that I needed kind of back at that time when I was having those conversations. But absolutely, by being in a position where we were not adequately meeting the needs of some of those early customers, we were lucky to have customers that were that cared enough to tell us what they needed, what we were not doing right, and what needed to occur. Um, it's led to a couple different things. One, an extraordinary focus on California. Mm-hmm. Two, the, the kind of improvement of our collective understanding of what our customers need. Some really important product changes over the last couple of years. Uh, and four, thankfully, kind of renewal rates in California that mm-hmm. are kind of similar to just about anywhere else in the country. So by kind of not being good enough early, I think we then kind of opened ourselves up to the kind of feedback we needed and we needed to listen to in order to then make the changes to get to a much better place. Yeah, you know, both the examples that you brought up, yours, Jordan, with California and yours, Teddy, with SA and policy changes are both really a product of being able to sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on in education and specifically in in EL education. So how do you go about doing that? I mean, you're in this case, you know, somebody externally, there was some data that they looked at and they brought it to your attention. You, you know, you, you made a change. But as an organization, how do you go about making sure that we always have our finger on the pulse of what's going on so that we can make changes and make sure that our customers are, or that our partners are, uh, are, are taken care of? Well, I think there's one reasonably short answer to that, which is, always make time to spend time with customers. Um, and I, there's just no substitute for uh, that uh, real in-person, in particular in-person dialogue with customers. It becomes harder to do that as you, as you scale up an organization. So Jordan and I, probably Jordan even more than me, have had struggled at times to find um, you know, ways to make sure we're staying close that way. Um, even as the organization grows and you end up having new layers of managers that sort of kind of end up being kind of intermediaries to those kinds of conversations. So it requires a little bit more deliberateness as you grow. But, um, you know, even just, gosh, two weeks ago, I was on the field and I came back really with my mind exploding about some, you know, observation or new uh, thought that had been um, described. And it really is so important to sustain that. Um, my favorite example of that just is like a totally different industry is there's I think he just died the other day um, or recently. John Bogle ran a company called Vanguard. He basically was the guy who invented what people know as like the index fund for investors. And he, he ran the company for years. It became the lar- largest asset management company in the world or one of them. And he still once a month would uh, make a habit of going into the help desk, putting on the earphones and like taking help desk calls from customers, many of whom were angry customers yeah, yeah. for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, and sit there for a day taking phone calls on the help desk. And uh, that was his way of managing it. Um, other, other folks find different ways, but I think the short answer is never lose the opportunity, always find the opportunity to spend time with the customer. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so I want to get into a little bit more sort of lighthearted type questions. So the first lighthearted question I have is what do, what do you uh, like most about working at Elevation as it's evolved? This has been uh, going on for you all for a while um, and uh, you have an interesting kind of perspective. So what's, uh, what's your favorite part about working here? 
I often say that uh, we're asked that during interviews by people who are kind of prospective uh, team members. At I asked that question. <laughs> uh, and I'll probably answer it the same way. And it only grows, which is, uh, I think it is uh, an extraordinary gift to at some point in your life have a professional experience where you can work with extraordinary people who are um, smart and passionate and creative uh, and are applying that in a collaborative way toward a like really hard challenge that makes a difference in the world. Everyone here could be doing other work, right? Teddy and I, we could be developing uh, photo sharing applications or something else kind of similar. We're both entrepreneurs, we like to build things. But what we've done is cho uh, cho we have chosen to work um, in a field where we can kind of apply what we do well to something with great impact. And to do that every day with others, where kind of the whole becomes much uh, stronger than some of its parts kind of with each passing day, I find to be an extraordinary opportunity. The one thing that I'll just add to that is uh, we've, we've touched on culture uh, and our values and the way in which the company runs. One of the like unbelievable surprises to me is the degree to which new people continue to add to and improve that culture. The number of different people who I don't actually at this point know all that well, who improve our kind of biannual company offsites or who contributed to the rewrite of our values, or who are kind of coming up with other rituals that add to the culture, I am just incredibly impressed with, and it is, uh, it's really inspiring. Yeah, I, Jordan says it well. I mean, I think for me, I, I'd say there's always a primary and then a secondary. You know, the primary real daily motivator for me continues to be the joy that I get when I meet with partners and talk with partners who are joyful for the products we've built and delivered to them. Um, it makes their work better and more fun. Um, we sometimes say that we, you know, we create tools that provide dignity to a group of professionals that sometimes feel like they're not as respected as they should be, um, mm -hmm. or rather they, they aren't as respected as they should be in many cases. And we're, we're that company that um, believes that they, uh, they, they really deserve the absolute best. And, that when that's affirmed um, in conversations with partners, I just, for me, that's awesome. Um, you know, I think there are, you know, I think it's really important too to keep your eyes on the students. I mean, I think, you know, every, if, if you're the kind of person who sort of wakes up and reads the news and sort of has a pit in your stomach about any number of things that sort of are troubling these days, it feels good knowing that, um, you know, we're doing something that is, massively helpful to a group of students who are often underserved, um, sometimes um, made to feel unwelcome. And, you know, we don't take the place of educators, but it feels good to be kind of on their side in that work. And um, it, it takes the edge off in my, in my mind thinking that, you know, we're doing something on a day-to-day -day basis here that uh, really um, is making the world a better place. So, um, and then I think Jordan says it well. And one of the things that's a little surprising to me, and it was not the reason we started the company, but for, or at least, at least from my perspective, but it has grown to be something super satisfying is watching people grow and have their own careers in elevation and, uh, and have their own lives. And you, you realize that, you know, we've almost created a community of people that have grown up in an environment that um, for them, hopefully will be a, a formative professional experience. 
Yeah. I mean, I could speak for myself with that for sure. I mean, if you had told me I would be doing what I'm doing now, doing this podcast and lots of other things um, five years ago, I would have been excited about it, but I wouldn't have believed you. So uh, I'm thankful for that, that opportunity as well. And of course, to be able to chat with educators and policymakers and people um, every day and provide those resources, I think has been a gift to me and hopefully to others as well. So without giving away any secrets, last, uh, last sort of um, episode-based question, could you tell us what's next in your journey at Elevation? What's happening next? Is there anything that, uh, any sneak peeks that you can give the listeners? Well, Steve, I feel like you've got a little inside information on this. Our mission uh, is to uh, ensure uh, all students, English learners in particular, can achieve their highest aspirations. And we're motivated every day to ask ourselves, are we doing what it takes to ensure that that, that type of outcome? Uh, and so each year and, and many times over the course of the year, we're evaluating different opportunities and asking kind of where are we going next year and the year after. We've always believed that serving uh, educators and supporting educators is necessary but not sufficient. And we look at other companies and other organizations that offer curriculum products or other uh, solutions that are used by students. And we say kind of the same thing. They are necessary, but not sufficient. And so we've been on a journey over time, which started with serving administrators and specialists, uh, then extending the solutions that we had built and building additional solutions for classroom teachers. Uh, and I think it's kind of reasonably likely that in the not too distant future, we will be a unique company that is serving and supporting both educators uh, and students with a solution in which kind of one part of it informs the other. We believe that we can be helping educators in the way we do, but we can strengthen that if there is kind of a component of elevation being used by students and providing kind of data and additional insight to teachers to strengthen their practice. And kind of similarly, if we can um, combine the work that we've done with educators to uh, develop solutions for the students themselves, I think in that case, one plus one equals three. Very exciting. Stay tuned uh, for more information about that, but you've given us a little glimpse as to where we might be heading. Um, so this is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast and you all are going to be included as well. Um, Teddy, I'll start with you. I'll put you on the spot. Is there a book or resource that has influenced you in your personal or professional life that you would like to share? And I know that you are an avid reader, so you could choose something mm -hmm. that you just read recently. It doesn't have to be EL related or education related. What do you have? Well, um, so I do love books and there's a lot I could babble on about. Um, you know, there are two, uh, let me give you two examples. Um, for the, for the listener who is curious about how uh, our thinking has been shaped as entrepreneurs, um, forget my interests in history and other things here, but if you think about like, how is our, how has our direction been shaped as entrepreneurs? For me, there's really two quite key books or at least two key authors. Um, the first is um, uh, a gentleman named Clay Christensen who wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. He's written a couple others. Um, I tell people The Innovator's Dilemma is, is really the, one of probably three business books that are worth reading. Um, put another way, most business books, in my view, are not worth reading. But that narrows it down. That's good. That narrows it down. Um, <laughs> I'll save the other two for a different podcast. Um, but, but The Innovator's Dilemma is just such an unbelievable 
um, story about how and why companies either innovate or can't innovate. And it, and it helps people understand um, how companies like Elevation can even exist and why they must exist. Um, so if you are um, an entrepreneur who thinks they've got an interesting idea worth pursuing, but you're intimidated by all the big, bad, giant companies out there who, um, you know, could easily squash you, um, The Innovator's Dilemma is a good book for uh, building up your courage because it helps you understand why, in fact, big companies are almost paralyzed by their own success and can't innovate in the way that small companies can. So that, for me, is like definitely one for the list. And then um, I'll sort of riff on Jordan's comment earlier, but Walter Isaacson has written a couple biographies. There's one on Jobs, which is really interesting. And then there's another one on Franklin. And there's another even on Einstein. And they all have this common theme, which is that the, some of the most extraordinary innovation happens at the intersection of several multidisciplinary themes, right? It's science, yes and technology, but it's also art and literature and narrative. And um, for me, that's always been kind of inspirational because I'm not a technologist. Um, everyone here knows I can't code anything except maybe an Excel sheet. Um, but uh, what I can bring is, um, you know, pretty deep reading and, uh, and, and a pretty, um, I'd say, strong ability uh, to communicate. Um, and if, you, if you're able to bring together those threads, um, you can really create extraordinary change and no one of them alone is sufficient, right? So narrative without the technology is not quite complete, but then again, pure technology goes nowhere unless it becomes part of what people really, you know, really see in sort of the human experience. So anyway, those are two or three books from Isaacson that I'd say kind of resonate with a similar theme, but for me have been quite important because it, it first off addresses some of where I, the strengths that I think I can bring to this kind of enterprise, but also kind of speaks a lot to how innovation happens. Great. So you've managed to mention about five books total. That's right. Jordan? Well, <laughs> just um, I, I do, I want to pick up on kind of one, uh, one thread in there and then I'll name some books. Teddy um, noted the importance of narrative. I would extend that to say kind of the importance of storytelling mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for us as founders, and I see this as kind of one of the kind of primary parts of my job, I need to be creating the story, kind of the vision, keeping people motivated and pointed in the same direction. And I think reading and books and having analogs and stories that we can share is a really important part of that. And that's important for anyone. It's particularly important for Teddy and for me and the roles that we play. Uh, and both of us read extraordinarily widely and very much outside of our kind of work discipline. So whether that is um, Steve Jobs or whether that is, uh, you know, long form magazine articles or whether that's both of us have read a fair amount about Churchill, kind of talking about other leaders and being able to kind of weave together stories are particularly important when you're trying to keep a group of people over what has now been eight years kind of pointed in, you know, some distant direction. So kind of with that, um, I would name, I, I thought about this as kind of my own journey. And so um, I go back to, uh, I'm a senior in college and I had the opportunity to go uh, to Atlanta for the kind of, there was a summit uh, put on by the Children's Defense Fund. 
and Jonathan Kozel was the uh, was the speaker mm, there. Yeah. And he um, had, I think, around that time come out with Savage Inequalities. And while I don't agree with everything that Jonathan Kozel says, um, and that might be a nice uh, opportunity for another podcast, <laughs> the very clear communication of the difference in resources when comparing two different school districts that were separated by a couple hundred miles kind of down the New Jersey turnpike uh, was extraordinarily eye-opening. Kind of what was available to students in a reasonably wealthy suburb uh, and those students that were uh, being educated by a school district in a low-income community. Having that brought into such sharp focus for me really began for me the journey um, and then ultimately starting Jumpstart to focus professionally on um, underserved communities, on students that were underserved and the opportunities to have an impact. And that is a great book. Um, second, so uh, Teddy and I had a great year before we started uh, Elevation. It allowed us to engage with lots of different people from Carrie and Hal, who we talked about, uh, to one of our mentors, Larry Berger, uh, who we got to spend time with and really um, learn about the starting and growing of a company and many others. The last book that I read before we uh, really got Elevation up and running was called um, Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank. Mm -hmm. And while I can't tell you all about it, the most important piece, and you've probably heard this kind of woven throughout uh, this conversation, was that innovation happens when you are out in the field, when you are engaged with uh, end users, in our case, educators uh, and administrators, when you sit with them, when you show them things, when you get feedback kind of over and over. And that's become part of the way in which we run Elevation. We don't kind of move quickly to a 100% solution. We start with small things. We get feedback. Our product folks and engineers get out in the field. Um, and while Teddy and I are not only responsible for that, many other people are, I think the kind of ethos behind that was uh, instilled in me very much through that book by Steve Blank, kind of uh, right out of the gate. The third book that I'll just kind of highlight uh, is a more recent book uh, by someone who I also might not say I agree with kind of everything that they write about or say, but um, the author Anand uh, Jirdirdas, uh, who wrote Winners Take All, uh, which has gotten an enormous amount of attention uh, over the last six months. And what was most important about that was, and it gets to your question about nonprofit and for-profit, uh, he shines a light on the kind of systemic, the negative systemic impact that occurs because of the way our tax system works, um, because of the way social services um, are constructed, and that um, in order to get to a more equitable society, we need to be organized very differently. He also kind of points a finger at for-profit education and management consulting and investment bankers and lots of other kind of industries. And it's just kind of, it was a, it was a helpful reminder uh, about the responsibility we have and that um, the need to be focused on ethics and morals and everything that we do to make sure that we're not doing something to others, but that we're doing stuff with others, that we're listening and asking ourselves hard questions all along the way. Um, is particularly critical. And that was just a great reminder and at times a kind of two by four over the head to make sure that we're doing that. Yeah. 
Well, you've given us a lot of reading, a lot of homework to do, but those are some great books and different. The only one that I think has been mentioned before is Savage Inequalities. I think every other one is actually a new. So after 70-ish podcast episodes, you've managed to, uh, to, to, to give us five original new books, which is great. Um, and speaking of, of 70-ish podcasts, it's, it's taken three of highest aspirations to finally get you two on. And that's not because you didn't want to be, but because we wanted to make sure that we sort of created uh, the credibility and, and understanding that we're not just bringing folks on from Elevation. But I think it's really important to bring you two on as part of this story. Um, and I think you, you gave us a lot of food for thought, perhaps a different kind of podcast episode than the listeners are used to. But I was really, really glad to have you on. So thanks for making the time. I know it's a really busy time of year. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. And thanks to all of our uh, partners and listeners on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to uh, watch this take off and uh, be a part of uh, helping to communicate to the community and work with the community. And, and thank you to you. You do uh, an extraordinary job. I think we've now gotten to that point in elevation where if Teddy and I travel with Steve, everyone wants to talk to Steve That's and right. not to us, yeah. <laughs> which uh, is a nice kind of uh, point in the evolution of an organization like ours. Well, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.